Welcome to the ID10T Podcast number 1054. So, uh, yes, the Wizard Guitar Tour is uh, just uh, temporarily on hold while uh, everything is sort of sorting out. Um, so we have kind of frozen the tour page just until we get a better idea of how everything is going to shake out. Uh, but we will update you as soon as we obviously get more information. But if you go to id10t.com slash sign up, you can join the email list and uh, we'll keep you updated. And then we'll send you some positive messages every so often too. And then, you know, just kind of like weird stuff we're making and that kind of thing. It's not too invasive in your inbox. And uh, of course, you can unsubscribe at any time. So id10t.com slash sign up would be great. But let's talk about you, the id10t community, like Roman, who writes, love your podcast, been a long Long-time listener from back in the day. Oh my god, we've been on so long. There is a back in the day. I'm writing to let you know I've got wood. Yes, I'm a nerd who has wood. But we made uh, seriously we made a thing while locked up in Corona madness, and we figured we love them so much we try to sell them to the masses to make some Corona scratch. And who knows beyond? So please check out our wood at geekswithwood.net. We're making art for geeks by geeks, and pretty excited about sharing it with the world. Um, it's, uh, I'm looking at it right now. It is really cool, like, woodcraft that are very um, uh, relevant to your pop culture interests. The homepage right there has some great uh, Star Wars woodcrafting on it. So geekswithwood.net. Thank you, Roman. Uh, now, this episode is Bill Pullman, who's awesome. Now, this is the first time that I don't... Yeah, uh, I mentioned that I hadn't done... Uh, an internet-based podcast since, oh my gosh, it's been like seven or eight years. And we tried Skype and the, the, the quality is okay because we did it via video chat because I thought, oh, video will be good because we can see each other and then it'll be, you know, it'll just make the conversation that much uh, simpler. But what it actually did was compromise the audio quality. So, um, you know, while we're exploring other options for that and Zoom or whatever, going forward, we're going to just do um, audio. I recorded a podcast today with just Skype audio, and I think it actually sounded really good. So this, uh, this, will, this one today with Bill will sound a little bit like a phone call. I'm not going to lie. It was fun to video chat with Bill Pullman, which is a fun sentence I never thought I would uh, get to say in my life. But uh, he was great. And uh, just really sweet and affable and really embraced a lot of the stuff that we talked about, just like iconic things that he's, that he's done in his career. And, you know, maybe I maybe or maybe not uh, pulled out the uh, dark helmet from Spaceballs. Um, so and he and he loved it. So uh, anyway, it was really fun. Also, I think. Um, he may have had his uh, his email program open because there, I did hear like the email the Apple email alert ding occasionally. I'm only telling you that because if you hear it, you might go, "Oh my god, am I getting an email?" Um, it's probably coming. It's inside the podcast. The alerts are coming from inside the podcast. So I just wanted to let you know. By the way, uh, Bill Pullman is uh, promoting season three of The Sinner, which is on USA. The season finale. Air- the day that this is posting, which is Thursday, March 26th. All episodes are available at usanetwork.com. So, uh, as always, I hope you are staying safe. I hope you are staying healthy. I hope you are staying home. Uh, I appreciate you for listening, and I hope that our little digital offerings can uh, offer you, as I said last week, uh, uh, an escape from all the stuff. So, here you go, the ID10T podcast number 1054 with Bill Pullman. literally just i do a usually a live television show on sunday nights and we just have been doing a skype version of it uh how are y'all doing good yeah i'm just figuring this out the skype i used to skype a lot more 
Um, and then all of a sudden the FaceTime and in Europe and things like that, you know, shifted and it was easy to text and FaceTime. So I dropped out of Skype, but now it's good to be back. <laughs> I know because it's really hard to, I mean, I've, I've had a bunch of meetings via Skype or Zoom and it does feel like some bizarre dystopian future movie where it's like, oh, people, this is how people communicate now. We all look at each other on a screen and someday maybe we'll get to see each other in person, but that doesn't seem like it's going to be soon. So this is the new normal. My daughter leads a choir and they're now downstairs getting on Zoom so that 23 people can all be there and they're trying to figure out, can they hear each other and I don't think they'll ever work it out that they'll be able to sing together on, right. on but uh, she mutes them and, uh, and and hopes for the best. This must be very surreal to be promoting Sinner. Like I would imagine a lot of the publicists all of a sudden went, oh shit, how are we going to promote all these things that people worked so hard on? So are you doing a series of Skype chats to promote? Is that what your day-to-day is now? Well, you know, a lot of the old-style, old just audio phone conversations. And then I did the radio junket, you know, which was all, that's just waking up early in the morning and talking to a lot of different cities. Uh, and that's always been that way. But, um, yeah, but this is the first time on Skype, so uh, you're pushing the envelope. I, re- I appreciate that, and I appreciate that you wanted to do video because I've never... I don't think in 10 years of doing these podcasts, I always insisted like, well, we have to be in person because there's so much to communication that's about body language. And I need to know like if people are comfortable talking about different things and when they're shifting in their seat or whatever. And so being able to read all that is so important. And I started hearing like, Oh, people want to do audio only. I'm like, Oh my God, it's going to be like the eighties when we just used to call people on the phone and be like, what's up? You know, this is good, but I do get a context for you. I get the guitar over there, oh, which yeah. is see, it looks a lot like our library, uh, a little less Gothic though. I think there's some, is that a jawbone? Uh, is that a, um, yeah. So that's there, there's a taxidermy. There's a vintage taxidermy alligator head there. Behind oh. him is a giant like bird eating spider. It's just one of those giant sort of tarantula type spiders that eat that eat birds. Um, yeah. Then there's a, yeah, there's a guitar, and then I just have a bunch of weird oil paintings in my in my office. And my wife and I like a lot of weird goth. Uh, it's like if you came to our house, you would sort of feel like. Uh, like a weird Victorian museum in a in a strange kind of way. So yeah, we're into all that weird stuff. What what is your what's your what's your dominant aesthetic? Uh, haphazard. It's uh, no. We have. I think our dominant aesthetic was uh, connected to the fact that this used to be close, either close by or somewhere close to a pineapple grove in 1910. Oh wow! House was built in 1917. So. We uh, that whole idea of ag agriculture in California in 1910 is probably the biggest uh, arts and crafts painted arts and crafts house, and then I have the orchard outside. So um, you know, it feels, it's got a little bit of agricultural uh, old uh, California agriculture. About nice, it. And, and so you feel is it is it a comfortable place to be holed up indefinitely? Yes, yeah, it's really, uh, it's a very uh, atmosphere. Everybody says this is the best house for holidays because it's got a very traditional, traditional side to it. Good. Well, I, I was, I, I'm so, I was so blown away that you agreed to do the podcast just because, listen, you've literally been in some of the greatest films in the history of film. And you, your career spans so many different, like there's not one type of Bill Pullman movie. It's just like, I imagine was your theater background. Does, I've never seen someone's career so much sort of mirror what it must be like a film version of a theater background, where it's like you play any kind of character in any kind of production, and that's just it. Yeah, yeah, I know. I uh, I think you. I I live in denial of it, but then there's certain kind of perfect storms where a bunch of product that's been kind of in the works kind of getting clogged up and then they all kind of go. And was it, uh, it was in February 
in February where I had done this wild movie in Poland last a year, two years ago called The Coldest Game. Okay. And a uh, chess player in 1962 who's in a chess match in Warsaw and he's on the spectrum. So it's a little Bobby Fischer-esque and wild, crazy, epileptic bits, everything. And uh, at the same time that uh, I was in the, the play that I had done last year, All My Sons, was recorded by National Theatre Live. And uh, we performed it in front of 600,000 people live. Oh, my gosh. Except for the U.S., where it was held because there was a production in New York. So that got released in cinemas, you know, in their kind of like um, little cultivated art house release where uh -huh. you can see an art house movie. And that was in February. Um, then a couple of things came out on uh, Netflix. Bought, I got access to the Ballad of Lefty Brown, which is me as, you know, kind of the sidekick, limping sidekick. And uh, that, that was the same time as The Center started to air. So it was like a shitstorm of Pullman. Man. <laughs> if you ever write a book... Just consider Shitstorm of Pullman. Just consider it. Because <laughs> right. I feel like people, if I saw that on a shelf, I'd be like, I don't know what. I, I need to read that. Whatever it is, I need to read that. Right. But, even, but, you know, even going back to, was Ruthless People your first movie? Yeah. I mean, what an amazing first movie. It's legitimately one of the best comedy, like the best comedies that came out of that decade, Ruthless People. And were you doing a lot of theater at that point is that where is is that where you were kind of making your bread and butter and then just sort of transitioned over yeah i just was gold digging you know i was in i came out to la to do a play and um it was called it was about russians in afghanistan in 85 oh wow americans were in afghanistan it was really but i had the dyed my hair blonde to be a russian tank commander and uh, it was a wild experience, and I had never dyed my hair before. And I, while I was out here, I started to audition, and the Zucker brothers and Jim Abrams, who were the directors, I was in for a very small part. I was lucky to be there. They were laughing uh, kind of spontaneously. It was like if immaculate conception laughs, you know, not born of something I could put my finger on, nothing I was saying or anything. It wasn't responding and it turns out later they said they loved my hair for this part and i ended up getting part the part of uh, you know uh daryl i guess and uh and then i had to recover my hair uh, three two months later when we went to shoot it but it was a wild time to transition from theater into into doing the movies and i was thinking okay i'll just get this money which I really needed it at the time, and uh, I'll head back to New York. Uh, but then, you know, things happened, and uh, it didn't happen. And Mel Brooks and Ann Bancroft came to see me in a play at LATC, another play that I was in. Uh, so it really is a big start of my career was connected to theater. Oh, that's really interesting because I, uh, I was just talking to Carrie Elwes on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he said Mel – came to see Princess, I think it was Princess Bride, maybe, and then put him in Robin Hood Men in Tights. It was like, Mel seems like the kind of guy that he would just go out because he loved comedy. He loved, and he would go, oh, I want to work with that person. And then he would find something for you. Well, yeah, I, I think he saw something in Ruthless People he liked, but the play I was doing was a, was a medieval pageant play about Barabbas. Oh, wow. Instead of Christ. No comedy that we, <laughs> we were attending. But uh, they came and they, you know, God, and he's, he just, he's, he was, he used to make a joke that because he tried to get Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise, but he couldn't get a Tom, so he got a Bill. He used to, <laughs> and Bill was like, Oh, out of the blue, man. I had just ducked that one little part in Ruthless People, and there I was walking down the, into the little Fox commissary behind Mel Brooks and meeting, you know, Jane Fonda and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it was, 
there was a bill following along, not a Tom. But was it? Had you done a lot of comedy in theater, or was it? Was it? I mean, because obviously your first two movies were really hardcore comedies and two totally different types of comedies at the same time. So was that, was comedy kind of in your, on your radar at that point? Or it's like, Oh, I'm getting cast in this. I guess I'll just do it. Yeah. I I think I just uh, had done comedies in theater and, uh, you know, I toured with a theater company and outdoors and we did a lot of Moliere and uh, a lot of Commedia plays. And so there was them, and uh, the Shakespeare comedy. So maybe that was the, the most concentrated. I, I did learn from some pretty good uh, theater. Uh, one guy in particular was very influential. You know, in these theater companies, you end up with one heavy set guy who plays all the rustics in Shakespeare. And this guy, <laughs> was like, uh, I learned so much about what was funny, especially what was funny outdoors, what you had to do to get focused and make, make, get, you know, get a laugh on us on some of that Shakespearean stuff. Well, that, but that's the other thing too, is that comedy in theater is very different from comedy on film, you know, where there's like, there are no reactions and you also, I would imagine you have to play everything a lot smaller because there's a camera in your face, but was, did it take a minute to sort of get Mel's, like to get Mel's wavelength in that movie because it's Mel just kind of has his own genre. Basically he is sort of a subgenre of comedy. So going into that, did you know that? I assume you'd probably seen, you know, young Frankenstein blazing saddles and history of the world and all that. Or did he, did, did he, was there like a, a, a learning curve where it's like, oh, okay, I guess this is sort of the vibe of this. Well, I think with Mel, you know, so much of it is, really deep-rooted in Catskill, Vaudeville, yeah. you know, and those, and Ronnie Burke and uh, Thomas, um, oh, God, his name is the writer, they all were, shared a lot of those, um, kind of, that kind of style, and so I really learned, because I had already kind of had a version of what I thought film acting was, which was, you know, not repeat myself, and look to get if it was a funny line to see if I could milk, milk it in a lot of different ways, you know, no, that wasn't what I wanted. He know what I was going to do. You know, we'd go in there for rehearsals. Only Daphne and I would submit to rehearsals and somehow John Candy and Rick Moranis refused to do it. <laughs> Basically it was so priceless. I'm so glad Mel made me do it. I, I learned so much right away. And basically, he would do the line, you know, and he would do Daphne's line. And I, you know, just saw what genius it was for him to. And he just wanted me to hit the mark every time we do a rehearsal. He couldn't see the same thing enough, uh, you know, like, yeah, no, no, that same delivery that you did yesterday that made me that I said I liked that one. And I just, oh, really? Okay, this is what, okay, I'll just keep hitting this, you know. And uh, I don't know whether it was just the him, um, but he, what did he, he was very, uh, very helpful that way, you know. And uh, and then by the time we went to shoot it, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if it was the most favorite way that I've worked in comedies. I For me, it's not, you know, uh, probably as, it was great to do it in that context, but I, I didn't feel like that was something that I needed to do for the rest of my life. So much of, you know, of it now, comedy is, is, is deadpan, um, reactions, those kind of things, you know, which are really born from being in the circumstances in the moment as intensely as you can be, you know. Yeah, I, it's, I didn't realize, I might go grab it in a sec, it's downstairs, but... I actually bought at um, a movie auction. My wife and I have like a lot of weird movie props and stuff. I have Rick Moranis's helmet, his a- the actual helmet from the movie, and uh, he and I got him to sign it, and I got Mel to sign it. And uh, so, if we had been in person, there would have been a Bill Pullman signature on there as well. Uh, yes. I oh God! How did you get it? In the it just you know. Um, the, the the sort of the movie prop auction scene right now is 
big because literally everyone can bid on stuff in the world. So it's just these sort of like online entertainment auctions and it came up and, uh, and I bought it and I have it and it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. It's flimsy, but it's, you know, it's the fucking helmet. (laughs) It's before, before we wrap this up at some point, I'll run down and get it just so you can see it. But it, uh, it it really was like I was so excited to get that thing. I mean that that movie that's just it's a piece of comedy history. So yeah. when you're working on stuff and you sort of move on, and then years later, some nerd like me is like, "Hey, uh, remember the part in Spaceballs?" Are you like, "What? I haven't thought about that movie in like thirty. Like, do you just sort of like do the job and then just kind of move on? Well, yeah, you know. Uh, when we did that, it was so long ago, it was before VHS. Yeah. So, you know, it was probably about seven or eight years later that I at, uh, at the house and we're having my wife's cousins over. The, the, uh, the cousin had just come into L.A., had him over, and somehow in the conversation I mentioned something, had some reference to space balls, and he goes, wait a minute. Can we talk about Spaceball? (laughs) Yeah. And he knew all my dialogue. And I listened to him and I go, I don't really know if that's what I said, but he remembered it. And I bet you that's exactly what I said. So I went back and watch it. That's so, so you watched it? Did you watch it again? I watched it then when it came out on VHS, so that was probably in the 90s, mid-90s. I love, by the way, that someone, like, he was probably just waiting for you to give him the green light. Like, yes, we can talk about, oh my god, I didn't know that was on the table. Here, you know? I mean, that type of, um, I don't know, I mean, that type of fandom... It's now it's so common to be able to communicate with people that you see because of social media. But certainly in the 80s and 90s, you didn't really like people just didn't have access to people that they saw and stuff being able to communicate or talk to them or send out messages all the time. So I'm sure it was greatly. I'm sure he was like one of the highlights for that for that guy. It was nice that you appreciated that. Uh, Yeah, it was definitely he got some goosebumps. (laughs) <laughs> well, I also remember that you did another movie after Spaceballs, which was totally different, like you said, which I loved, which was Serpent and the Rainbow, which was such a great, creepy, the trailer for that movie when I was in high school just freaked the shit out of me. It's just being buried alive and don't let them bury me. I'm not dead yet. I mean, that that movie was such a great, it was so visceral did you were you offered other comedies after Ruthless People in Spaceballs? Did you actively turn them away in search of like a darker kind of a thematic, almost psychological horror piece? Uh, you know, I think it just came up um, in the in the course of events. So I I later did other comedies. I did um, I think shortly after that I had done uh, sibling sibling rivalry with Carl Reiner. Yep. But, uh, the, the Serpent and Rainbow came up with more like, wouldn't this be an amazing adventure to take this real-life story of this ethnobotanist, Wade Davis, and meet him, and he's a consultant on the movie, and he was the one who had gone down there, embedded himself in the Tantamaku, and learned this exact recipe that they were using to make this, you know, poison essentially that could render human uh with no body functions but still be alive Uh, you know then they and that was a big adventure we went down to haiti and shot it in haiti in the dominican republic and that was my third movie and i thought they were all going to be that way and i don't think i ever got a repeat of some (laughs) (laughs) i mean for you is it does it feel like do you does it how does the job part of it not get in the way of the sort of artistic part of it? You know what I mean? It's like there's a lot of job stuff. You know, you got to do press. You have to like, like you said, it's not always going to Haiti. You know, it's you. There, there is sort of a clock in element to it. And so for you, what is the balance between 
still being able to infuse the artistic part when it feels like the work side of the business is like 80% of it. And the art side, you really only get to do for like 10 or 20% of the time. Right. That's right. Yeah. They, uh, you know, I think um, the hardest thing is when you have to do press for something before you've shot it. You know, they, they're starting to do that more and more. And when we did the sequel to Independence Day, we had a junket for it in Albuquerque. And I don't think I had shot more than one or two days. And we're already talking about how we did the role and, you know, all of this stuff. And, that was a little uncomfortable, but uh. <laughs> I know, especially because at that point, it almost doesn't matter what you say. You know what I mean? Because it's like, eh, you know, there's so much media and there's so much press. If you say something that doesn't happen in the movie, is anyone, you know, by the time it comes out, is anyone going to remember or notice? It's just like, we're so, are you on social media at all? At all? No, not at all. No. Your life is probably significantly more peaceful as a result, but it, <laughs> it just, there's so much, you know, we're just inundated so much with everything all the time that I'm sure it was fine. But Independence Day was, I remember that being like the sort of return of the real summer blockbuster when that movie came out. And I didn't know much about it before it came out. And then all of a sudden it was just this massive, massive international hit was was there any sense of that when you guys were making the first independence day like we're making a blockbuster guys or was it just like yeah you know it's kind of a weird alien movie we'll see how it goes yeah it, it really was not expected to be that big a movie i think for most uh for most people i think um in january of that year that it came out uh, there was a list of 20 movies to look forward to in the summer, and it wasn't on the list. Oh, wow. Yeah. And wow. Then, uh, then, they start, then it started to kind of creep in, and uh, it started to pick up a little bit. But it was once they got that image of the White House blowing up, there was something about that and the whole logo of July they came July 3, they attacked July 4th, the day we fought back. Right. And that was a real, like, duh, this movie. <laughs> <laughs> what the heck is this? <laughs> well, it also had so many, there were also so many great elements, like the actual concerned president and the snarky uh, military, you know, like, Will Smith, who's still, like, you know, dropping one-liners in the middle of an attack. And they're like, you know, you got Jeff Goldblum in Jeff Goldblum form. And also, let's just talk about uploading a virus from a MacBook in the 90s to an alien spacecraft, which not, you know, this was, there wasn't Wi-Fi or anything at the time. That Now, of course, we understand how networks work. But at the time, that was a very revolutionary idea to use... A, 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 it was a power book, actually, not even a MacBook. I think it was a power book, like the original Mac laptop uh, to upload onto that thing. So I just think it did have a lot of elements that were very fresh that we hadn't really seen in a movie yet, in addition to the special effects. That's a good point. Yes. Yeah, that had the... <laughs> was it fun to revisit all of that? Like, when you... When you heard there was going to be a second one, were you like, "What? We did it the first time," or was it like, "Oh my God, this will be, this will be fun"? It's been you know twenty some years. Yeah, it was really great. I I loved all those guys. You know, the Roland Emmerich is such a really wonderful, uh, wonderful movie maker. I just been being kind of refreshed with this way of. Uh, it, there's always some moments where he would say. Uh, this time you come through and it would be really cool if you did this. And we're going to have this effect over here. It's really cool, you know, and he just has such a thrill of making things kind of in his, according to his lexicon, cool. Yeah, but there, there's also, you know, you, you must have a sense you must have some sort of a spider sense when it comes to picking movies because you do such great examples of each type of genre. 
Like, you know, Wyatt Earp is a really great movie. Independence Day is great. Lost Highway is a whole other thing, you know. Lake Placid is a movie, another movie where I think people are like, oh, it's like a big alligator movie, whatever. And then all of a sudden it's huge and the movie's amazing, you know. It's like you must – What what is your selection process? Are you using runes or are you – do you have some type of psychic ability? What is it that is – what speaks to you about a project when you read it that makes it feel special to you? You know, I, I don't know. I, I, um, I, some, some of them don't do as well as I think they are, you know, and I was just thinking about that because I went to get a cup of tea in this uh, mug, which is a Welsh flag symbol, and it was given to me by Russell T. Davies, who is the guy who wrote Torchwood. Torchwood and Doctor Who. Yeah, he did the revamp of Doctor Who, and then the spinoff, Torchwood, and then we did uh, Miracle Day, which was a 10-part series about, you know, this phenomenon that happened when I play a, a murdering pe- pedophile. Right. And trying, they're trying to kill me with a lethal injection at the top of the movie, and it doesn't work. And then they realize that someone else that was expected to die didn't die right after that. And they realized from me on, no one is dying. And they thought it was a miracle. But quickly, it began, became clear that no one's getting better. So they're all hovering in sickness. So the whole amount of what's, where are we going to get the resources to take care of these people? And I've been waiting for somebody to draw an analogy between that torchwood and this. And it just below the radar enough, I guess, that it hasn't uh, struck. But I, I keep thinking that was one of the great premises and really, you know, a great allegory to, for, for planet Earth. Well, yeah, and Russell, I mean, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, and of course, and, you know, uh, Torchwood and John Barrowman, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's such a great universe, and Russell was so good at sort of tackling a lot of, you know, a lot of these kind of like philosophical life questions about about us but through the lens of you know like aliens and the universe and we and sci-fi and it to me those doctor who like doctor who and torchwood i sort of put them in the same category as like you know the original rod serling twilight zone where it's like there's there's such great commentary and very progressive commentary on our culture, but, you know, like done in a way that is, you know, through this other kind of sci-fi lens. So I completely understand. But when that happens for you, like when you go, oh, I think this is going to be amazing. And it doesn't, you know, and it's not as big as you had hoped it would be. Do you just, do you have sort of a mantra like a, well, on to the next thing? Or do you have to mourn that for a second? Or do you, are you just sort of like, ah, you know, it's just part of the business? Yeah, I guess I'm, I live in such delusion. <laughs> and I, I avoid social media, so I don't see a lot of references to how disastrous something is. And I live with the thought that it was so much fun to make it and, uh, and that I, uh, those that I have talked to that liked it, liked it a lot, and I'm going to live with that. You know, So I've kind of gotten a little bit uh, hardened to the fact that some things get reje- rejected. Well, but I also think that it's, you know, it's such an interesting idea and especially one that I think a lot of people are really coming to understand, especially now, but the idea that, you know, we don't really control anything and we sort of build these bubbles of security where we kind of, you know, we're able to trick ourselves into thinking we have some sense of control either through routine or whatever it is that we do or we have stability and security and something like this happens and we realize, oh, we really, you know, we don't, you know, we can sort of control how we react to things. But being an actor, you have about the least control in the entertainment business, right? Because you get hired, but you still have no control over, you know, oh, they didn't hire you because you're not 6'2", you're only 6'1", or they needed someone with this color hair. And then when you get the job, you don't know what take they're going to use. You don't know how they're going to light it. You don't know what how it's going to be edited. I mean, you really have to be comfortable with not having any control and just showing up and doing what you do, I guess, and hoping for the best. Is that sort of how it works? Yeah, yeah. And some of it is, is like psychological. Am I crazy here? You know? Like if you don't get validated for your thinking process of what you understand humans should be interested in and what 
what wins their intelligence and wins their all of that, uh, then then it becomes a little bit of a scary uh, sense of being uh, way outside the curve of what most people think. And I, you know, it's interesting. I do large parts, small parts, and dark waters was uh, a, I have a small part in that, but a good part. Uh, and with Mark Ruffalo and that movie, I think I was so, even though I didn't, I didn't have the hugest investment in it time-wise, the story was so good. And Todd Haynes is such a great filmmaker and the movie is so profound and challenging and about relationships and a lot of things beyond just the social justice issue of it. And the fact that I was realizing with the Academy, I wasn't seeing any traction, nobody talking about it, nobody including it on their top 10 list. And, and I felt a little bit uh, insane um, that it wasn't getting traction. You know. Yeah, but I would imagine, you know, at a certain point, you probably just have to go, you know what, though? But I showed up. I got to be a part of this thing. I did what I did. And that's sort of the process of that is is the reward. I mean, how much, you know, like it obviously feels great to be validated externally, but I think the people, you know, that have like a strong, you seem to me like you have a good center, like you seem like a grounded guy. And I'm wondering, where does that come from? Did you learn to be that? Or is it someone in your life? Or were you raised that way? Or is it innate? Like what has allowed you to continue to sort of just, you know, move ahead, focus, keep working all these years and keep your head on your shoulders. Well, you know, I think um, I've been thinking a lot about my family because they're, most of them are in medicine of one type or another. Mm -hmm. And this during this period where you're seeing caregivers really push to the limit and my brother's an infectious disease doctor in Montana, uh -huh. but my parents, I think, and my when my mother was a nurse, my father was doctor and I think their acceptance of every type of humanity that walked into their office there was something about that ethic that never spoke disparagingly about any of their patients and they was in a small town and every one of them was interesting to him and everyone deserved his fullest attention and I think there was a great embrace of humanism that he had, and my mother as well, you know, that uh, said whether things are going um, poorly or not, there's always somebody who's suffering a little bit more than you are, and you should be aware of them. And if someone's getting excluded, you can always draw the circle a little larger to keep them inside, you know. And so maybe that's, uh, in these times, I think a lot about um, that kind of teachings that you get when you're growing up that's invaluable. That's really interesting to hear because it, it, as you're saying that, it makes me realize that one of the things that I think you're so amazing at is just playing human, like real human people, just like a guy, you know, like a guy going through some shit and you are able to ground that in a way. By the way, I think just playing like a regular person is so much harder than a crazy character who has a lot of ticks or a lot of... You know, like something to really hook onto because that to me sort of feels like, oh, yeah, you know, like that's you, you have that dimension to jump into when you don't know what else to do. But just to play a person, to play a guy going through stuff, that to me seems really hard because who is that guy? What do they latch on to? And it sounds like because of the way that you were brought up, it's just finding their humanity. It's like, how do you unpack them and just find that sort of like, how do you empathetically connect with their humanity is there a process that you go through to sort of do that when you're cracking into stuff, or is it just second nature? Well, it must be maybe, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think uh, it just, yeah, because part of it is that uh, I feel like um, uh, one of the great joys of working on The Sinner is this kind of um, quality that he has, which is in the script and it kind of comes about and maybe that's why Derek found me 
was um, something uh, that Derek believes in about radical empathy. Mm-hmm. I've never had heard that term before, and I, but and he may have coined it. But that sense of radical being uh, like uh, and being empathetic to put yourself really in somebody's shoes in a way to really um, not just feel sorry for somebody, but to really try to try to understand and accept the way they're ticking, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that's somewhat of a you know thing for Ambrose that becomes a little bit uh, makes him vulnerable as he starts with something approaching somebody like Matt Bomer's character, right. where he's really really sensing there is a genuine conflict within this person, and this person wants help sometimes, and then at other times doesn't and is dangerous and uh what how do you keep your bow you know the ballast in the ship going how do you keep the float uh, tipping over when you're next to that when you're inside those kind of uh that kind of radical empathy and now we're going to pause to tip of the hat to our sponsor for this episode of the id10t podcast squarespace Squarespace. Hey, maybe now's the time to build the digital thing that you always wanted to have. Whatever kind of online presence you want to have that's not social media based, but your own thing that you can craft the way you want it, whether it's a a blog or a presentation or um, some type of a product that you want to sell. You know, Squarespace has incredible e-commerce software. It can help you do that as well. Um, Any kind of business you want to promote. But now, what's really exciting is that they have email campaigns, all right? They're going to help you with your email campaign. It's going to be simple. Uh, it's going to be powerful editing tools to make it your own. You can customize the layouts, and you can do mobile editing, so you can send anytime, anywhere. So Squarespace, top to bottom, has you covered for whatever it is that you want to create um, on the old internet. So... Go to squarespace.com slash ID10T, get a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code ID10T, and you're going to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace, your all-in-one solution for making your digital thing. Thank you to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of the ID10T podcast, which now we glide gently back into. Do you, do you ever uh, – are you ever able to – just sort of shake it off like like because obviously when you become empathetic you you do feel things you know you feel things for these characters even though it's pretend you feel things for them and so are, are you know do, do you have any kind of a ritual that sort of like sort of shakes off the last role and moves on to the next role you know or, or are you are you able to just sort of clock in and clock out that way I don't know. I think, uh, you know, having come, I was you know, just was shooting this Netflix series about Halston and I played David Mahoney, who's a, who was the corporate head of uh, Norton Simon Industries, okay. the one who bought the licensing, had the vision that he could bring someone like Halston, this wild renegade designer, into a very corporate structure and make him flourish. And so there was a guy who, uh, uh, his book is called uh, um, uh, something like The Confessions of a, a Street Savvy Corporate Head or something. And, you know, that just that kind of certainty, self-assurance, uh, everything was great to kind of shuck off Ambrose and get into a, a whole different breathing pattern and, you know, shave my beard, get changed everything. And uh, so I was really getting into that a lot, and then we got shut down. So I'll have that to go back to. I'm glad that, yes, yes. Hopefully you'll, yes, I'm, I'm glad that you'll be able to go back to that because it, I would imagine you probably, like you said, everything you want to be different. And so do you ever sort of say to your representatives like, just bring me something weird. I just want to do something that's so far out there, some sort of really crazy character piece. Do you? Are there different sides to your creative mind that you feel like you still want to scratch, or that you just sort of you know get caught up in sometimes that you want to do? Well, I I think there's there's 
Yeah, there, I, I remember there was a period where I felt like I was not getting enough, uh, as I call them, salty dogs. <laughs> <laughs> you mean it's like, like, the, like the military general or the like, you guys need to watch your ass and get me. And is it like that guy? Yeah, curmudgeonly, uh, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, having attitude, not being sympathetic, you know, being uh, somewhat uh, of a curmudgeon, you know. And I even put together I, a little file of pictures of myself that I said, these are the, these are salty dogs that Pullman has kind of wharf through and I just wanted to remind myself of the salty dog uh, wing of the gallery of portraits of Pullman. <laughs> I love the idea that you're trying to convince people like, look, I know you think I'm a nice guy, but I can be an asshole. Okay. Can you please just make me? And they're like, no, I'm sorry, Billy. You're just a nice, you're a nice guy. What do you want? You're a nice guy. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. And, there's been a lot of not nice guys recently. I mean, definitely Ambrose is not a nice guy. Right. You know, you're very isolated, very caught, you know, very, you know, not fluid at all. Uh, disappointing for people, antisocial, <laughs> all those behaviors. So I think I, I landed a few salty dogs. Well, that's good. That's good. I mean, I even just... Even you're, like you're in the movie Singles, if you remember it, for like five minutes. But you have such, but there's even such a humanity with that character where he just like there's that turn where you just go, see, I just don't know how to have fun. Like, and it it's so endearing. And I'm curious how you're able to take like you know five minutes of screen time and do something magical with it like that, which that you know. That, that, that could have been someone else who just sort of like didn't, you know, like whatever. It's He was a doctor. He was a breast augmentation doctor. He's in and out in five minutes and it's fine, you know. But are, are you like, is that conscious or are you working? You know, do you say to Cameron Crowe, like, well, I have an idea. Here's how I kind of want to do this. Or do you just sort of do you kind of make the note before and then just run with it when you're on the day? I, I you know, I just always hope that when I get there and start doing the thing that I want to be something, the, the space I want to be in, that it's going to be something the director feels like is good and appropriate for the movie. And uh, I did, you know, in, in Dark Waters, I had not that huge a part, but it was really, I knew this guy kind of how it would operate. And Todd Haynes being the director is just let, let it fly and gave great permission and great encouragement. And uh, so I didn't get mucked with, you know, in terms of I got supported and got good notes and everything, but I uh, didn't, uh, there was a basic conception of, of the character that was, that was great. So I'm, and you know, the secret about singles is that I got cut hugely. What? Yeah, because, and Cameron, you know, was, uh, was a great director, you know, great uh, person and everything, and so invested in all the characters. But if you remember, um, uh, what's his name? Dr. Jameson. Dr. Jameson. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't come into the story until one, you know, it's an ensemble picture, and Bridges' character was really flowering later. And it was, it's really kind of midway through the movie that she goes and decides she's going to have this boob job. And that's when Jameson said, you know, really, I don't think you need this. And um, I first read the part and turned it down. And Bridget Fonda had sent word through and said, Pullman, you've got to accept this. Just talk to Cameron. You'll see. I talked to Cameron and he said, what's wrong? Why don't you take this part? And I said, well, I just, my father was still alive at the time and he was a blood and guts doctor. And he always, if there were a few times where I felt a little short of patience and, dis, and disrespect, it was for plastic surgeons. Oh, interesting. Yes. And I said to Cameron, I, 
I don't want my father to see me playing a plastic surgeon in his lifetime. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. So how did, how did they convince you to do it? He said, I want to put that in the movie. And so we had this whole thing that I can't remember if it's, this part is in there or not, but it's where he says, look, I'm not, I think it's in, still in this where I say, I'm not going to be, I'm doing this plastic surgery, but I don't even believe in it. I don't think I'm going to be doing it much more. Um, and it was a short reference to something we did see later. But in that moment, she decides, we decide that we are not a likely pair to see each other, but um, why, don't, why don't we try? And so we have an attempt at a relationship. And I, then I have this, uh, this kind of awakening that I'm, I'm really uh, just recently divorced and not great um, in a, in a uh, position to really feel comfortable with someone younger than a little younger than myself and that I didn't understand, uh, you know, the music. And that was- <laughs> <laughs> That's so fun. I mean, that movie like helped launch that whole genre of music. That's really funny. And here was Jameson going, I'm just sorry. And so he gets us all prepared to say to her and he goes to her house and she's had this kind of like uh, also awareness that maybe he's going to reject her. And she gets this advice that when someone like uh, that you had a relationship, having a relationship is about to reject you, you can have a, you can kind of, um, uh, you know, reduce its impact on you if you picture them in embarrassing circumstances. <laughs> I came to the door. I started to say, "Look, I think so much of you," but, and then all of a sudden, I'm a clown. I'm in a whole clown. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's such a bummer that that got cut. That is. That's yeah. fantastic. Really. And so he called me up, you know, just before it was going to get released and everything. He said, Bill, I got to apologize. I, you know, cut, cut all that stuff out. But when I saw the movie, I thought, what a blessing in disguise. Because there was something really beautiful about our relationship in that brief little minute that didn't need the comedy afterwards. Uh, in a way, it was more vivid by what potential it had that it didn't fulfill than it did by fulfilling something disappointing. I just, I'm so, I love the idea that like a lot of times an actor will call their parents and go, listen, I'm just so you know, I'm, I'm, I did nudity in this movie. There's a weird sex scene. I don't know if you, I just am picturing you calling your dad and going, Lick, I, I don't know how to tell you this. I play a plastic surgeon. I know, I know. Like, what are you? <laughs> did you did you break the news to him or did he did he ever not did you just not see the movie? I you know I don't think he saw the movie uh, eventually cuz um he died uh in 92 and I think we did the movie in 91. I'm not sure if it had come out yet or not but he was pretty much uh on a slippery slope uh, by 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 that time but I did wear I had a pair of his shoes, you know, that I've carried with me. I still have them. And I did wear them as Jameson, you know, to kind of keep me honest during the whole thing. That's, that's so, that is such a beautiful story. I, you have no idea, like, that that kind of depth and thought and empathy. And also even just hearing you say that, it's like, oh, my gosh, that makes so much – the context of that based on, like, how human the Jameson character is – it just it paints in all of this other background that I didn't know about before. I'm so glad you shared that story. That's a fantastic story. Well, and it speaks to the genius of somebody like Cameron Crowe, who says, "I'll include it. Yeah, I'll include your objection to doing this part." And then you you think, "Wow, that's that's really uh, somebody who's fluid and can you know really make something uh, out of what's actually happening in front of you." rather than just some kind of conceit. 
with all of the with all of the different roles, do they all? Is there any one in particular that you sort of feel like more connected to than others, or does everything just sort of bleed together? Uh, you know, different moments in my life. Um, I, uh, you know, there's, they're, they're all uh, some of the ones that I, I, I think, you know, I guess I think of some that I always wished uh, could be uh, revived or that I had some kind of real joy that was really hard to leave them. Part. And sometimes they're not always the most successful movie, but Mr. Wrong was a character that I really, there was something so good about being such a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. When everyone thought that this is the most normal person and she thought, he's Mr. Right, he's Mr. Right. And then he starts reading poetry. And Ellen DeGeneres is amazing in it. She's just a genius at reacting. And, uh, you know, but that movie, I don't know if it'll ever get uh, full, full due. It was, you know, it's, it has the stigma of kind of, she was still, um, uh, you know, not kind of out yet. And so the premises of it were a little bit, I don't know. She jokes a lot about it on her TV show, but she hasn't asked me on her show yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't just, I don't mean to laugh it was just sort of like I don't know if you thought about that before it just came out like oh she's in a good sense of humor although I don't recall having been asked to be on the show so, <laughs> now that I think about it maybe I don't know but I guess it's just sort of like you know looking at the tapestry of everything that you've been able to do I, I really hope that you feel as much joy as you have brought so many different types of audiences because of the breadth of the types of stuff that you have worked on. I mean, do you, do you, you seem like a pretty humble guy, so I don't know if it's anything that you think about, but do you ever, and this can all be in Shitstorm of Pullman, which obviously is the book you're going to write uh, after this podcast, but, but what do you think about when you think about your career? How do you, how do you see it? What does it mean to you personally? Um, I guess it's like a child that, uh, other people say, are you proud of your child? And, uh, and, uh, and as if they kind of wonder whether you sh should be. And I, always <laughs> <laughs> you know, I really, um, I've had so many transformational experiences, you know, and it's, but it's spread in a kind of pattern that really is it you thank god it's not a virus because you never know where it came from but because uh, i think of like the fact that i did um you know this i did a version of othello in norway live in theater uh, about four years ago uh, with this guy that I had worked with 28 years before and I wanted to work with him and we, and I spoke Norwegian, uh, for 15% of it oh and, English and then listened to about 60% of what was said to me was in Norwegian. And it was, you know, these kind of experiences that I think I, am I going to live through that? <laughs> and I, the fact that I lived through them all and somehow made it through to the other side is, uh, been very, uh, very rewarding. And I, I, you know, I've just had a couple of years of really good run. So I'm, um, feeling like, uh, I do every once in a while think, I, I don't know, having that, that, uh, repeat of center, you know, it's the first time I've ever done a recurring part and I would lived in fear of it. I just thought this is going to kill me if I get into something and, and I see everybody just showing up and, and plug like you said, punching the clock or something. And I just, that would kill me and, uh, and, and still be doing it and listening to people justify why they're doing it because of the money or something like that would really, but I, instead I get something I can't believe is so engrossing and the part is so 
and so much collaboration with the writer and be able to make it so autobiographical. The whole second series is about, a, you know, Ambrose going back to his hometown in western New York State, which is basically built on my whole autobiography and from being from there and things in my past. So I, uh, I guess I'm pretty, uh, uh, pretty glad that it's all... Uh, I don't know if anybody else would want it for a career, but I love it. <laughs> well, and you also, like, I know you've written plays as well. I was reading about Expedition 6, and it's a fascinating idea for a play. And I don't think I ever would have, like, how do you do that as a, how do you, because it's basically about the, um, uh, it's about people essentially trapped in in space, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was uh and I, some of the cases I trained as a theater director, you know, and uh, I made a lot of plays with documentary material. So that was one that I made from a true story of uh, when the Columbia blew up on October, uh, February uh, 3rd, 2002. There were three uh, astronauts on the space station essentially stranded because they couldn't bring them down and to send up another shuttle. And just what it would be like to be in space looking down on earth in that kind of bottleneck of history then and i we did it all with low flying trapeze oh my gosh that's uh, incredible so you're you you so you had to you had to you had to fold in wire work at the same time with everything else yeah this was um well it was the low flying you know the single point uh so it's on one axis and uh it's not like the two the chinese uh style trapeze but uh yeah it was i did tr- worked with uh nine actors that were trained in this and yeah so i get to do a lot of things and um really i might right now i'm making a play about uh, uh this artist charlie russell and i'm working with my son who makes puppets i have a middle son who makes oh, puppets fantastic and so you know I keep going at what amuses me, whether anybody else gets it to see it or not. Do you mind if I just run down to the next room and grab the Spaceballs helmet really fast? May the Schwartz be with you. (laughs) It'll take me 30 seconds. I'll be right back. It almost doesn't fit through the door. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. That is amazing. Right? And it just fits over your shoulders. If you, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it fits. It fits pretty perfectly. Wow. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that I got to get in there. Amazing. Yep. Yes. Oh. I really can't thank you enough. This is, I hope this was okay for you. And I, it actually was totally, it felt totally normal to me. Like you really helped make this sort of feel not weird in these weird times. Well, I appreciate you're so interested in movies. And I just, when you said that about Torchwood, Steve, I have to say that gave me warm heart because uh, that you said that Doctor Who and Torchwood are like in the category of Twilight Zone. You know, just that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it was, you know, I'm just such a huge Doctor Who fan. And, you know, I'm sure you know that Torchwood is an anagram for Doctor Who. And I and I do think that the people who know Torchwood and who know that world, it's not a casual love affair they have with those things. I mean, like, like the fans of it are super fans. So just, you should be, um, you should feel good knowing that the people that did get to see it fucking love it. So it's that 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 should that should be of some uh, that that should that should get get some mileage for you. That and every other reference you made, you know so much about movies. So I'm really glad we got a chance to do it. I am too. And then just sort of lastly for people, just one quick thing: like, what's your sort of joy space? Like, what do you do outside? Is there anything outside of acting that sort of you know, like just like a hobby, anything that makes you joyful, anything you do just for you. Is there anything outside of that? Well, we're kind of doing it. Yeah. Being back here, I have an orchard here. And uh, so spending time with the trees right this time of year is really great uh, to 
very good, joyful time to be in California. It's pleasant weather. Uh, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, temperatures in the 60s is the highest, and the birds are singing. And, uh, and I've got an uh, incredible amount of fruit this year because I got my gray water system going on the, this row of 22 trees that I now this year are, finally, are given crazy amount of citrus. I got four different kinds of mandarins and limes and then uh, some other exotic fruit trees. So that's, that's giving me a lot of good, uh, keeping me occupied too. I hope you have a great rest of the day. Please stay safe and healthy. And um, yeah, I'm, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll talk again sometime. It's great, great pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. So. Cheers. Take care. Take care. ID 10 scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito.